Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Content warning for mentions of child abuse. So, where and what do you have planned for us this week, Kayla? So, this week, we are talking about a killer who I'm not quite sure how to refer to him. He is known as the Bikini Killer, and he's also known as the Serpent. And there was actually a Netflix series called The Serpent that was about him, and that's based on a book called on the Trail of the Serpent, which was originally published just after he was captured um, and then was republished in 2020. It's a really good source. The journalists actually got to talk to him. They met him and they got to talk to him before he decided to keep his mouth shut about everything. Mm. So it's a very good source. And I also read a book called Serpentine, which was more editorialized and not as good, but still interesting. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So... I started watching the show The Serpent to try to get a feel for this, and it does match the book pretty well. Like, I'm sure the authors, Richard Neville and Julie Clark, I think they actually met with some of the victims, and I think some of them were like, oh, please don't use my real name. And so the show uses the the fake names that are used in the book in order to protect identities. So I think that's pretty cool okay. that they weren't like, this is what this fucking guy's name is. And it's like, oh, cool. right. <laughs> Thanks for right. doing that. But the show like goes in and out of chronological order in a way that like was mm. not at all effective for me. Like I knew what the story was and I was still like, where are you going? What are we doing right now? Where are we? Even when you know what's going on and you're asking what the fuck is happening? Interesting. Yeah. And it's not like I've never seen a show or a movie that went out of chronological order. Like it was sure. just really disjointed. So yeah, I, I've actually wondered myself, like, should I always go in chronological order on the show? But for the sake of this story, yes, for sure. I'm 100% going in chronological order. Because <laughs> if you've seen the show, I'm sure it was confusing. And so I'm going to straighten that out. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So we're going to start at the beginning and go in order. And when we get to the end, we're going to stop. <laughs> Love to hear it. Love to hear it. So where do we begin? Well, his real name is Charles Sobraj, and he was born on April 6th, 1944 in Saigon. His mother was a Vietnamese woman named Noa'i, and his father was Noa'i's boss, a wealthy Indian man named Ho-Chan, who owned two tailor shops. Charles's birth name was originally Gurmuk, which is an Indian name, but he was later christened Charles after French President Charles de Gaulle, because there was a lot going on in international politics at the time. During this era, Vietnam was a French-occupied territory, and it was actually called Cochin, China. Cochin, China? It doesn't seem right any way I say it. I verified oh, <laughs> the way to say, like, everything in this episode, and no matter how I look at that, it doesn't... <laughs> it's not right. It is definitely <laughs> weird. <laughs> and actually, Cochin, China was just a portion of the colonies that were at that time referred to by colonists as French Indochina. And this okay. had a massive impact on Charles's life coming up in French Indochina. 
And his father's success came from being wealthy in India and then prospering in Saigon as a moneylender to the disenfranchised mm. Vietnamese. Yeah. Okay. So under these circumstances, having been born in Saigon, Charles should have been able to claim French nationality because Saigon was in a French colony. And to make Makes things sense. But to make things more confusing and fucked up for the people of Vietnam, from 1940 to 1945, Indochina was a French-administered possession of Japan, and the French permitted 30,000 Japanese troops to be stationed in the countries of Indochina and allowed them to use all the major airports in Vietnam. Hmm. Are, are okay. You, are you still following? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best. I think so. I think so. There is a lot happening. <laughs> and so because of this occupation, during this time, Nwai and one-year-old Charles were kidnapped off the street and taken for ransom, but Hotchand was able to get them back using his social connections, and the gang responsible for the kidnapping was apprehended by the Japanese military without harm to Nwai or Charles and without any payment being made for Hotchand, which is good because he actually didn't have as much money as the gang thought that he did. Gotcha. And, That's pretty fucked up, though. And it's just one of the first things that, like... So Richard Neville and Julie Clark, I really liked them because they were like, we were able to verify everything that's in this book. Serpentine, not sure. able to verify as much, but they were like, yeah, we went back, we looked at records. So this happened, even though you're like, what the absolute fuck? They were kidnapped for ransom? Right, right. And a his child, life... Like a child and a parent, not yes. just the child. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. 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 And it just gets fucking weirder from here. So Nwai and Charles, they lived in Ha Chan's lavish apartment, but she was only his mistress. When she was pregnant with their second child, Ha Chan went on a trip to his hometown of Pune, India, and when he returned, he told Nwai that he was now in a marriage arranged by his family. And he told, mm. yeah, he told Nwai that, like, the marriage doesn't matter or whatever, and she could still live with him in Saigon, but she took three-year-old Charles and left. And then after that, she met a French soldier from Bordeaux named Jacques Roussel. And the two of them were married in September of 1948. And Charles's baby sister, who was Ha Chan's daughter, she was named Nicole after Jacques's mother. Charles was also formally adopted by Jacques at the wedding and accepted as his own son. But Charles never really accepted Jacques. And he didn't take well to the change in his environment from a large, lavish apartment with servants to army barracks. I mean, that is quite the disruption. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then when Charles was restationed in Marseille, Noai decided that four-year-old Charles would be happier living with Hotchand instead. And so the boy was put back into the care of his father and then left in Saigon while the rest of the family went to France. So in 1945, towards the end of the war, the Japanese, and this is World War II, because there's also the Vietnam War, obviously, is going to come up. So this is World War II. The Japanese forces left the countries of Indochina for fear of French retaliation. The Viet Minh seized Hanoi, but the French wanted to maintain their power in Vietnam and the rest of Indochina. So, as we mentioned in the Agent Orange episodes, in 1946, there were essentially two Vietnams. There was the communist-led North and the non-communist South. An agreement was drawn up between the French and communist leader, Ho Chi Minh that gave Vietnam the status of a free state in the French Union and promised the slow removal of French troops over the next five years. However, 
the French, unsurprisingly, did not want to give up their perceived power over the country, and the agreement fell apart and led to the start of the First Indochina War in about December of 1946, which is essentially the start of the Vietnam War. The Viet Minh waged guerrilla warfare against the French and were aided by China, while the French were aided by the United States. And if you want to hear more in-depth coverage of this, I would again just say go listen to the Agent Orange episodes. But all of that is to say that in 1951, Jacques and Hawaii, along with their two-year-old son Jean Daniel and a fourth child on the way, returned to Saigon by orders of the French military. Upon their return, Noa'i discovered that Ha-Chen's wife, Gita, was essentially making her seven-year-old son, Charles, fend for himself on the streets. And oh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. I'd be so upset. And I think what's even more unfortunate is that Charles loved the rough lifestyle of, like, selling sugarcane and making bets with French soldiers and, like, just hanging out with the other kids in this, like, worn-torn town that, like kind of just anything is going right now because everything's fucked up. And so she was like, oh, no, you need structure. And so she petitioned for full custody of Charles and brought him back to live with her and Jock and the other children, which, again, is like he got used to one thing and then was sent back, got used to another thing, and now he's going to go live with, like, a military family. Now he's just flip-flopping around. Yeah. Not exactly a stable situation. Right, right. And he did not want to stay put. Charles kept running away to his father's apartment, which made Noa'i feel like it looked like she couldn't control her son. And so to prevent future escapes, she locked him in the bathroom and then went... And, this isn't like a pet, I like, know. which I also don't condone, but I know a lot of people do. Like, I've heard of people locking their dog or their cat, like, in a bathroom, but, like, mm-hmm. locking a child in a bathroom, like... Yeah. Yeah, especially is, when yeah, it's, don't like... Don't lock things in the bathroom. Right. Especially when it's, like, <laughs> look at the situation. Your kid was in a war-torn country with, like, it. people were being bombed, the city was being bombed, like, he had no supervision, and now you're trying to tell him, like, you can't have... The stable relationship you had with your father and this rough and tumble lifestyle you have to come live with me who hasn't seen you for four years and the stepfather that you don't like in an army barracks right of the army that is attacking your country right like right. of course yeah. he's gonna be upset but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then he kept escaping from the bathroom because he's not a dog he is a child right <laughs> <laughs> And so after that, she decided when she left the house, she was going to tie Charles to the bed. Oh, my God. And that didn't work either. He got out of that. And so she tied him more securely to the bed. And then as a punishment for running away and, like, breaking out of his bonds, she left him tied up like that for a couple days. (sighs) Yeah. 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 So he's got some issues, understandably, at this point. Sure. And I mean, I'm sure this is not going to condone whatever's to come. No, 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 but... no, no. <laughs> yeah. But. But, yeah. I felt like we needed to discuss it. Yeah. So in 1953, Jacques got home leave and the family returned to France. That after only a few months, he was asked to return to Vietnam to fight the communist forces. And so he, Noa'i, and the three youngest children returned to Asia, while Charles and Nicole were left in France and were sent to a Catholic boarding school near Paris. The other children 
all already spoke French because they had lived with Jacques for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. But nine-year-old Charles didn't speak French, and now he was going to a Parisian boarding school. (sighs) Yeah. And his mother was like, oh, this will be great. Like, you need to get a decent education in, like, a a stable country. But how are you going to get an education when they speak a language (laughs) that you don't understand? I know. I know. Think (laughs) about it, Noah. Think about it. Yeah. This, that's, that's got to be uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. Like, he had to be in a lower class because he wasn't doing well. And then on top of everything, he was, like, wetting the bed. He was struggling with bedwetting. And, like, Mm. I can fucking see why. Like, we've named all the reasons why this night. (laughs) And so, Nawai, she was like, oh, this is a problem. And so, like, instead of helping him out in any way, and, of course, it's the 1950s. There's not going to be therapy. But she was like, I'm just going to tie a string around the tip of your penis at night, and that's going to be the solution. Oh, my God. (laughs) How did she see this being the solution? Like, I don't know. Oh, don't, my God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had a sad Harry Potter life at boarding school because, you know, he wasn't good at weird niche sports. He was in remedial classes. He was a minority in a European country. And when everybody left for the holidays, he just stayed at school. So he was one of the kids that, like, Aww. yeah, it was like he was an orphan at school. And, like, Nicole is there, but Nicole is doing fine because she speaks French. She gets to be in the regular classes. Like She's thriving. Yeah. She's thriving. And he feels betrayed because she's like, Jacques, he is like, Jacques isn't even your dad. What the fuck is your problem? <sighs> so they're not going well. And then, much to his dismay... When his mother came to actually visit him for the first time in a year in 1954, he realized he'd forgotten how to speak Vietnamese. Now all he knows is French. He can't even remember his mother oh tongue. Oh, my. No. <laughs> I, know. Like... I know. This kid and... needs a break. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. So, Noa'i's there. They have to speak in French. And she explains that the war in Vietnam was over and that the family was going to be together again and they were never going to return to Vietnam. And for context, this is because an agreement called the Geneva Accord was reached in 1954 that created the demilitarized zone in Vietnam and provided a time of ceasefire between the French and the Viet Minh. And that's why the family was getting out of Vietnam. But obviously, we all know that things got worse after 1954. But in 1954, they didn't know that that was going to happen yet. So they're just like, we're leaving, we're never coming back. And Charles, of course, did not want to continue living with his estranged family in France. He wanted to return to Ha Chin in Vietnam. But Nwai told him that he couldn't because Ha Chin was dead. Okay, just because I feel like she's a piece of shit. <laughs> like, was she, like, did he actually die? Or is this something she's just telling him so that he doesn't want to go back to be, like, that he doesn't look at that as an option? Like, did he actually die? No, he did not actually die. See, I knew. <laughs> Charles kind okay. of figures it out, too. Like, it doesn't take him long either to be like, I don't think he's dead. I think you're lying to me. Yeah, it's yeah. Se- yeah this seems like a big fat lie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But so, in 1957, Jacques got an administrative post in Senegal, and the family, which now included seven children, moved to Dakar. They lived in a tin-roofed bungalow, and 13-year-old Charles taught the other children how to steal from nearby stores. 
He was also still doing poorly in school and couldn't hold any of the jobs that Jacques tried to secure for him. But no one was really doing all that well in Senegal. Jacques himself was actually suffering pretty badly from what would likely be diagnosed today as PTSD and had horrible night terrors that kept everybody else up at night. He would like just scream and like thrash in his sleep. And at this point, Noa'i began cheating on him. Mm. Yeah. So after their stint in Senegal, the family relocated again back to France, where Charles was again sent to boarding school. And he still wasn't doing well academically, but and, and he was still actually wetting the bed at 15. He wasn't doing well mentally. But this time he spoke French, and some of the kids thought he was cool because he was worldly and had lived a bunch of different places. And he actually had a teacher who saw promise in him despite his grades. So, you know, there was somebody who was like, hey, this kid might be on the wrong wrong track. Maybe he's not a great academic student, but like... There's hope for him. Yeah, he's a good kid. And at this time, Charles didn't know this. He he had assumed that Hachin wasn't dead. But Jacques was attempting to reconnect with Hachin in order to try and heal some of the emotional damage that the separation had caused. But... Hachand wanted very little to do with Charles and even less to do with Jacques. And so he was like, fuck all the way off. Yeah. Ugh, so that's sad. I know. I know. Like Jacques is trying. I feel like Jacques has always tried to do the right thing. Like aside from being in the military and attacking like the, sure. the country of the family that he's a part of. But like, I feel like he's really tried to do the right thing the whole time. Mm-hmm. But so Charles continued to act out and attempted several times to run away from boarding school. His most successful attempts came just after his 16th birthday in 1960, where he managed to make it as far as Djibouti and was making plans with a Vietnamese family he found there to get him back to Saigon. But he'd brought a 14-year-old friend named Michelle with him who wasn't as cunning and who blew their cover and got them shipped Ah. back to France. Yeah. Ah, I know. Blew up for him. <laughs> so Jacques sees all this disruption going on, and he felt that there was no other option but for all of the adults involved to get Charles back to Saigon so that he could live with Hachin like he wanted to. Like, that is all Charles wants is to be back in Saigon with Hachin. So Hachin agrees to come to Paris and see Charles. But before he could move to Vietnam, Charles had to get a French passport, and then Ha Chan would buy him a ticket. And there were some issues, but eventually the passport did come. But Ha Chan's ticket never did. And so Charles was like, oh, you're just like pulling my leg. You don't actually intend to get me to Vietnam, but whatever. I can't trust anybody else in my life, so I'm going to get me to Vietnam. So he's going to buy his own ticket. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but but how does a 16-year-old make that happen for themselves when they don't have a job? Right. He didn't have enough money. But he did have some money. He had enough money to buy a gun. And so he bought... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he bought a gun and he used it to rob a pregnant woman. And then he attempted, oh my God. He attempted to rob another woman but was caught. And so Charles was brought to court... And they realized that he had robbed the first woman and both women, like, they were face to face with him in court. And they were like, what's your problem? And he was very sympathetic at this point. He was like, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I did that. 
They didn't press charges, but he was still put in juvenile detention for six months and then had his passport revoked. Oh no, so now he Yeah. even's a no-go. Right, and it wasn't revoked because of the criminal charges. French authorities actually determined he never should have received a passport in the first place because he wasn't actually a French citizen and his nationality was undetermined, according to them. Yeah, so he's Okay. this he's this child who feels Laundering, unwanted yeah. and he Yeah, has no country. Yeah. I... Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. And at this point, like, Charles's behavior and the robberies and... Holding women at gunpoint, this completely broke Jacques to the point where he no longer recognized Noai and he was put in a mental hospital where he would live out the rest of his days. And this left Noai to raise the six younger children on her own with his disability pension. But before he was hospitalized, he had already started the process to get Charles his laissez-passer passport, which is basically a temporary pass. And so in March of 1961, Charles was able to leave France for Vietnam because of the last thing that a sane Jacques ever did. Well, that he really does seem like a good guy who was trying his best to do right by this kid who's not even his, I know. you know, like, Yeah. I feel bad for Jacques. I feel bad for Jacques, too. <laughs> Ugh. yeah. So he finally gets to Vietnam. It's been almost a decade since Charles had last been to the apartment in Vietnam, and a lot had changed. Hachin had left his first wife, Gita, with whom he'd had six children, and was now married to the children's nurse, Chu, and had three children with her. Still, Charles had his own room in the apartment, and Hachin got him a job at one of his tailor shops and was having him learn business in English. And for a while, Charles, Charles was just enamored with this lifestyle. Like, he gets to live in the lavish apartment, he gets to learn business, there's money... But it was all straight business. It wasn't the rough-and-tumble betting that he was used to in Vietnam, you know, during World War II. And so he started stealing from his father to pay for gambling and women. And Ha Chan has 10 children because Chu just gave birth to a son. And so when Charles's visa expired, he was like, get the fuck out. Like, I, I can't have you just fucking things up right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. But his nationality was still undetermined, and he was told that since he was born in Saigon, he'd have to join the Vietnamese army. And Charles actually didn't mind that. Like, he had no qualms about, like, joining the American war in the jungle to, like, you know, drive tanks and shoot at Americans and all that. He, he thought that that was going to be, like, the most romantic thing he'd ever heard of. But Ha Chan was like, no, you are not going to fight in the American war. And so his plan was to have Charles naturalized as an Indian, which would have excluded him from the Vietnamese draft. But it meant that Charles would have to live in India for a year, learn a dialect, and then after that year, have a comprehensive understanding of Indian culture. So a lot of studying Mm would -hmm. <sighs> a lot have of to be done. yeah a lot of work to be done Yeah, and that is not Charles's forte up to this no point. <laughs> no so... He was in Bombay for three weeks before he jumped a fence and returned to Vietnam, and then Ha Chen just found him, like, eating cereal or something in the kitchen. <laughs> and, of course, Ha Chen was furious and sent him, he put him on a ship back to Bombay and told him, you're not wanted here. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Charles decided to just stay 
on this ship. He wasn't going to get off in Bombay because he found out that it went to France afterwards. And so Okay. when it docked in Marseille, since he didn't have a nationality and was only given a visitor's pass to Vietnam and couldn't work, things didn't work out for him when he got to France. They were not happy with this guy who has no nationality and no passport. And so he was just sort of allowed to lay about. They didn't know what to do with him. And he decided to make money. He was going to steal cars. And then he ended up in jail. And then he did some more stuff. And he was just in and out of jail for a couple of years. And then was sent to a mental hospital at some point and broke out of that as well. And the French were getting very sick of him being in and out of their jails. And they were going to deport him. But they were like, well, we don't know where to deport you to. Right, like, Yeah. this is so fucked up, really, I know. like. <laughs> like, he was born on this planet. Let him be somewhere on this planet. Seriously. So at this point, when they're trying to figure out what to do with him, it's 1966, and a lawyer named Alain Bernard took pity on Charles's situation and decided to help him. He became a regular visitor to Charles in the Poisset Jail, and reestablished communication between Charles and his mother and his father, and actually helped him gain a nationality. His birth father or Jacques? His birth father. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he can still talk to Jacques, but Jacques, like, you know, Gone. Gone. yeah, he's gone. Yeah. He's gone. So he was able to get him a nationality because Bernard found an 1898 law that was technically still in effect, and it stated that individuals born in Saigon automatically had the right for to French citizenship. So Charles is French, officially. Woo! Yay. He It was... is, it's finally <laughs> decided. Yay. He's only 24 years old now. Right. <laughs> so he was released from jail in 1968, which was actually 11 days after his 24th birthday. And... Bernard liked him so much that he even let him stay with him to get on his feet and help him find a job and was like, I am here for you. I'm going to help you out. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's in April. And during his first evening of freedom, Charles met 21-year-old Chantal Compagnon. And in May, he proposed to her and she said yes. Yeah. All right. Moving Let's very move quickly. it. Yeah. <laughs> and her parents weren't happy about it, and Bernard wasn't happy about it. Everybody's like, whoa, let's pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> and Bernard wasn't happy about it because he knew that even during their month-long courtship, Charles had been cheating on Chantal with random girls. And Chantal knew a little bit about Charles's criminal past, but... Bernard knew she didn't know all of it. Like, she didn't quite know what she was getting into. And he he also knew that, like, her parents also didn't want her to marry him. Like, with good reason. Like, get to know the guy first. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, sure. But Chantal was completely enamored. And even when Charles quickly began to show his true colors, she stayed by his side. While they were still engaged, he lost so much money at a casino that she had to pawn an heirloom diamond necklace. And then while driving home from that casino incident in the pouring rain with a hitchhiker in the backseat, Charles ended up in a high-speed chase in a stolen car that Chantal did not realize was stolen. He didn't have a license, and he crashed into a pole. And all three passengers were taken to the hospital. Chantal received stitches in her chin. The hitchhiker was discharged. And Charles disappeared while he was supposed to be waiting for an x-ray. 
He was found and arrested the following day and sentenced to six months in jail. So back in he goes. Back in he goes. Five months after he was released, in November of 1969, Chantal and Charles were married. His criminal record weighed on him and disallowed him from entering Paris, like the whole city he was not allowed to enter, and so it made it difficult for him to get or keep a job. And eventually, his desires began to wander back to Asia. Even though Vietnam had never quite worked out, he's still yearning for something. I don't even know if he knows what it is, but he knows it's in Asia. Well, and it, and it's one of those things where it's like it hasn't worked at all, but he like wants it so badly to work. Like it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like so. Despite everything that has happened, he's like, right. damn it, things are gonna happen for me there. I just know it. I just know it. So he reconnected with Ha Chan. He stole some checks from his sister Nicole. And in 1970, he and Chantal, pregnant with their first child, began making their way to Saigon. However, before they could get there, the immigration office and the banks learned about their plan and were on the lookout for them. But Ha Chan heard about this and was able to warn Chantal about it in a letter. So instead of going to Saigon, the couple settled down in Bombay after three months of overland travel. Like, they traveled through Iran and, like... She's pregnant, and they're mostly going on foot, I think. And then oh, wow. November, I know, I know, like, why are you waiting <laughs> for that? Like, <laughs> like, like, fuck doing that, like, without child, but, like, doing that pregnant, big, <laughs> big pass. Yeah, you're on the run from the law, like, what are you yeah. doing? But anyhow, on November 15th, 1970, Chantal gave birth to their daughter, Usha, in Bombay. After the stolen checks and the running from the police in France and avoiding Vietnam for fear of capture, there was no way that Chantal didn't know what kind of person Charles was at this point. While living in Bombay, it was also unlikely that she was not aware that he was supporting their small family by criminal means. Which, like, I think that some people don't have a choice, but I think Charles had enough opportunities in his life that I really don't... He did. No, he had, he had the means to have a straight living like, yeah 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 and like now he has a kid and it's just like get your shit together but he's not mm -hmm. but chantal is still kind of going along with this she never asks questions she always remains supportive of him and even when she found out that he had gotten another woman pregnant she went and chewed out the other woman for sleeping with her husband rather than holding charles accountable wow <laughs> so the way that Charles was surviving in Bombay was by selling items on the black market. India had a ban on importing luxury items, and Charles exploited that. So he would he would get these luxury items, and then he would, you know, sell them discreetly. But he also sold regular items that he got duty-free, like radios and jewelry that he bought with stolen traveler's checks. So he's just ripping off everyone at this point, trying to make mm -hmm. as big a profit as he can. And, you know... It's the 1970s. The checks might bounce. The traveler's checks, like, no one's going to check it out because he's using stolen passports and disguises. Like, I just imagine this guy with, like, fake mustaches. The fake stuff. mustache, yeah. <laughs> the mustache and glasses. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nobody is, like, nobody's going to figure it out. I mean, well, this is what I thought was great about the Netflix show is that they showed how you can, like, forge a passport. And it's because... The picture was just hammered in with rivets. It's not like a passport now where it's like an ID and you're 
your pictures in there. Like it was an actual photo that's hammered in with rivets. And so you could replace the photo. Gotcha. So there's no computerized system that he's in. Like he's just going to steal from these people and then disappear into the crowd. His main source for these passports was Dipti's House of Pure Drinks, which was situated in Bombay between two major tourist hotels full of hippie kids backpacking through Europe and Asia. And Charles found that the tourists were usually overly trusting and high on drugs. And it made them easy marks who wouldn't notice a missing passport or think that they'd simply lost it somewhere without being too suspicious of anyone in particular. Sometimes he would actually enlist these backpackers in his smuggling schemes by flying to a European city that had the luxury items like cars that you couldn't get in India but that the wealthy in India desired. And he would convince the tourists to drive the cars back to India with him for just $200. Like, you want to make 200 bucks? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and people found him charismatic and worldly, but his targets were also simple, gullible. They were essentially kids on the Asian hippie trail, as they keep calling it. And so they kind of just believed anything he conjured up to tell them about this country that they know nothing about and he seems to, like, understand pretty well. But even as he's making all of this profit and doing pretty well with all this sketchy business, he couldn't stay out of his own way. He eventually bought and sold enough and clawed his way into wealth. And just as he was about to go in on a drugstore with a partner, he lost everything gambling. <sighs> it was thousands of dollars, including what he was going to invest in the drugstore. So just before Usha's first birthday, he disappeared unexpectedly without telling Chantel where he was going, but said he'd return soon. She waited and waited, fearing the worst. She, it's not like she's hearing from him. And then she figures out where he is because she read the following news article in a newspaper. And this is reprinted or summarized as it was in The Life and Crimes of Charles Sobrage. Two Frenchmen held in city Delhi robbery. In a surprise swoop, Bombay police arrested two French nationals allegedly involved in the sensational robbery from a jewelry shop in Delhi's Ashoka Hotel. The police have also unearthed a gun-running racket with international ramifications. The alleged Ashoka Hotel robbers were caught near the Taj Mahal Hotel. Charles Sobraj walked into a police dragnet. Can you imagine not hearing from your partner and then you read this fucking article that yeah, names them? <laughs> fuck my life. Like, I just like, oh, great. Fantastic. Well, fucking me and the are doing great. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> if the book Serpentine is to be believed for its retelling of this story, which seems to be done with a bit of narrative privilege... Charles was not actually the mastermind of this robbery. He had gone to Delhi to try and win back some of the drugstore money he'd lost, and he met an Englishman named Maurice, who told him that he knew a, re a recently dead mutual acquaintance of theirs, and he knew that this mutual acquaintance had been planning to kill Charles, and oh. he, he would help Charles out of this weird hitman dilemma if he helped him with a robbery that was already worked out. Hmm. So, comments? Okay. <laughs> Just okay. <laughs> like, that's a lot to unpack. Like, <laughs> this whole guy, like, his whole life is a lot to unpack. Oh, right. Fair. How do you keep doing this, dude? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. for this robbery, 
He posed as the director of a casino in Macau and earned the trust of a flamenco dancer referred to by her stage name La Passionara. It sounds like a bad joke, but I swear to God, this is what the story was in this book. <laughs> so she's a dancer at the Hotel Ashoka, and he convinced her that he could hire her at his casino for a better salary. So along with a French accomplice only referred to as Pierre, because he's a French accomplice, he convinced La Passionara to allow him into her room and at first tried to convince her to become a co-conspirator in a jewel smuggling operation. She refused that because she's just a flamenco dancer and doesn't want to get involved in that nonsense. <laughs> so Smart. It's at this point that he admits there is no other casino and she wasn't even actually that important to them. Okay. <laughs> we we actually didn't need you. We don't need you. What we need... Now that you've declined, we just wanted you to know. We didn't even really need you to begin with. <laughs> it's, I know it sounds like one of those Tinder things where it's like, hey, girl, and you're like, you, and they're like, fuck you, you're ugly anyhow. But like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But so they tell her that we just need your room because your room in the Ashoka Hotel which was part of her salary for dancing there. She got room and board. It was situated exactly above a jewelry shop that was part of the hotel. Okay. So they're So actually, we do need you. We, do, we <laughs> need your room. <laughs> yeah. But now you know about the plan, so now you have to stick around. <laughs> so their plan was to begin drilling through the floor of the room into the ceiling of the shop around 2 a.m. during a blackout because... For whatever reason that I couldn't quite figure out, Delhi was doing these, like, mandatory blackouts to, like, save electricity or mm -hmm. I'm not sure why. But they began drilling at 2 a.m. according to the plan. And then when they did that, they realized the drill was way too loud to be using at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and so they decided to wait. They're like, all right, we'll just hold off. In the meantime, La Passionara was told that if she stayed quiet, they wouldn't hurt her. But she also wasn't allowed to leave the room because now she's a liability because she knows the plan. Around 9 a.m., the sounds of construction near the hotel drowned out the sound of the drill and they were able to resume drilling into the floor of this hotel room. They held La Passionara at gunpoint until they broke a drill around dusk on the first day oh of drilling. Mm -hmm. And they had to reconsider their entry into the jewelry shop at which point they decided to enter through the air conditioning duct and the dancer was tied to the bed to prevent her from escaping in their absence. But the duct was too small for them to fit into, so the plan was abandoned. And we know that this is going to be a story that involves poisoning, but I just want to point out that there is already bumbling to a pretty, like, major degree. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, On par. So La Passionara, she was supposed to be in two shows that night, and she tries to convince Charles and Pierre to let her go. Like, she's like, I just want to dance. Please just let me go. And, of course, she's trying to think of, like, ways to escape if she gets to go. But they figure that out. Like, that's kind of obvious. They refuse. And they made her call her boss at gunpoint and tell him that she, she was too sick to dance. They're still trying to figure out how to get through the floor, and their next plan was to get acid to eat through the marble floor. But the strongest thing they could find <laughs> was photographic fluid, which I'm pretty sure is acetic acid, and that's just 
strong vinegar so that wasn't gonna... <laughs> not gonna melt the floor <laughs> no. like they were expecting some cartoon shit like where they just pour it and it just starts sizzling and disintegrating away like exactly. is that what they imagined i think so like... yeah you don't know how this works <laughs> yeah so that wasn't gonna work they decided there's probably no way that we can actually get into the shop from above and so finally Charles decided that if they couldn't get themselves to the jewels, they would bring the jewels to them. The next day, this is day three, Charles ordered the dancer to have the shop manager bring her a selection of fine jewelry, telling them that she wanted to purchase something for her mother. When the jeweler came up to her room, she was tied to a chair underneath a blanket, and then the jeweler gets tied up at gunpoint and gagged. But not enough jewels and stones had been brought up in the selection picked out for La Passionara, so Charles stole the key to the shop off the jeweler and broke into the shop during that evening's mandated blackout. Before taking off with their loot, valued upwards of $10,000, they returned to the hotel room with La Passionara and the jeweler and placed both of them tied up in the bathroom. They drugged- I'd also just like to add- like, mm-hmm. that's not a lot. <laughs> no. Like, I know. for all of the shit that they've, like, $10,000, like, is it not worth exactly it? the great heist. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know. That they thought it was going to be. But anyway, carry on. Sorry. So, so they drug the jeweler with sedatives, and they don't know what the sedatives are, but they drug him. They decide not to drug the dancer because they're like, we kind of like you. We've spent some time with you. You don't have to get drugged. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as the thieves were gone, the dancers screamed for help, and both she and the jeweler were discovered soon enough that the police were able to actually bring them to the airport as Charles and Pierre are trying to get away and scan through the crowd to try to identify any criminals trying to escape. So Charles sees them in the crowd, has the bag of jewels with him about to go through customs, and decides to just abandon the bag. And he's like, fuck it, I'm out. So he doesn't even get the $10,000. All that for literally nothing. Literally nothing. He was captured a few days later, having escaped to Bombay and met up with a disappointed Maurice, who convinced Charles to make up for his losses from the last robbery by attempting to rob the Taj Mahal Hotel, which was thwarted because he was identified for his part in the luxury vehicle smuggling operation that I mentioned before. (laughs) Oh my god. So, he was arrested, but he doesn't stay in jail for very long. By December, he'd been admitted to the hospital for an appendectomy that he actually didn't need because he faked the symptoms of appendicitis in order to get out of a jail cell and to be purposely put in the hospital. Chantal helped distract the guards while he slipped out of the handcuffs and escaped the hospital, but he was caught that same night and both of them were put in jail. When they were released in January of 1972, Chantal sent Usha to her parents in Paris, and the couple fled India together. In July, they were arrested in Kabul for failing to pay a hotel bill, stealing a car, and attempting to illegally cross the border into Iran. Again, Charles got himself out of jail and into the hospital by faking illness, this time claiming he had a peptic ulcer. Some of the details of the minor crimes committed by Sobraj are a little fuzzy, and this is honestly one of them. In one account, possibly by Charles early on, he somehow drugged his hospital guard with chloroform. But I personally doubt that this actually happened. The Mm. thing that I believe actually happened is that he asked for sleeping pills while in the hospital and was giving chlorpromazine, 
which is an odd choice for a sleeping pill since it's an antipsychotic, but this is still more likely than him somehow having, somehow having obtained chloroform. And then sure. holding on to said chloroform and then dosing a guard with it in their coffee to put them to sleep. Like, I just don't, I don't see that being the yeah. version that actually happened. But either way, Charles is said to have escaped from the hospital by drugging the guards and just walking out. And two weeks later, he was back in Paris. He was still a wanted man in France for defrauding the bank, but he wanted to get his daughter back as he plotted to get Chantal out of jail in Afghanistan. Because she's still she's there. She's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Such a dick. He's like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So he gets poor his, girl. He gets his daughter back. He's caught in Yugoslavia with a fake passport and placed at house on house arrest at a hotel. But he escapes. He got help from some tourists to smuggle him and Usha into Italy, where he got new fake passports. He picked up a nanny for Usha named Marilyn. He hired a driver who was 35-year-old Muhammad Habib, and he drove them to Pakistan. In Pakistan, he bought the supplies he needed for Chantal's escape, which included more clopromazine, nitrazepam, and mandrax. Here, he drugged the driver with something and put him in the trunk of the car to sleep, but decided that whatever sleeping pills he gave him, which were probably more chlorpromazine, weren't enough and he needed another shot of chlorpromazine to keep him asleep for the trip to Tehran, where he would take the man out and leave him and then move on with the car. In Pakistan, he also picked up a Dutch traveler for some reason. He keeps picking up hitchhikers. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna like, why do we need more people on this journey? But okay. Her name's Diana. She's also headed to Tehran, and she immediately became a liability when he opened the trunk at their destination and found that Habib overdosed and died, and was <sighs> yeah, and was already beginning to decompose in the desert heat during the drive. Diana saw the corpse, and he forced her to help him dispose of the body. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Like, no! I'm just trying to catch a fucking oh lift. God. I did not sign up for disposing of a body. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. my God. Okay. But anyhow, before we get into the details of that, why don't we talk about the actual poisoning that just happened? Let's talk about chlorpromazine. In the 1970s in Pakistan, it was sold as Largactyl. But in the U.S., it's more commonly called Thorazine. Oh, yeah. okay, the Thorazine shuffle. That's what you do when you're on Thorazine and you're out of it. It's the Thorazine shuffle. <laughs> so it's it's sedating then, yeah? It's, it's yes, yes. Okay, okay. Big time. I mean, Big that, time. That's what it's used for here, but I it seems like it must be an off-label use because I couldn't see anything that suggests it's actually used for sleeping medication. No, I no, I just knew it as a, I I had no idea of it by this name. I know it as thorazine. So Thor, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So yeah, used for the treatment of schizophrenia, bipolar. Mm -hmm. It's also mm -hmm. an antiemetic, and it can be used to treat tetanus. And what I thought was interesting, you might think is interesting, is that it could be used for acute intermittent porphyria. Yep. What is that? Do you know what that is? The porphyria. I know, but acute intermittent. How do you have intermittent porphyria? It because you have intermittent attacks. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, AIP is the main porphyria. Like really? that's the most common porphyria. Yeah, is the acute intermittent. Look at you yeah. teaching me something on this one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but anyhow, 
The side effect is that it causes sedation, and it was used as a sleeping pill here. It's not usually given in very large doses. As an antiemetic, it's usually given at 12.5 to 50 milligram doses every four to six hours. And then as an antipsychotic, it can be administered in doses as high as 800 milligrams per day. So that's not based on body weight necessarily. That's a per day dosage. Mm-hmm. It blocks muscarinic receptors, meaning that it has an anticholinergic response similar to scopolamine and can have side effects including dry mouth, dizziness, urine retention, and blurred vision. This sedation is actually caused by blocking H1 histamine receptors like Benadryl does. Mm, okay. Chlorpromazine is highly lipid-soluble and, and becomes stored in fat cells, making it slow to leave the body. Doses are started low and then slowly built up when properly administered by a doctor, and an overdose can result in fever, muscle stiffness, and jerky muscle movements, as well as tachycardia and seizures. When death occurs, as is likely in the case of Mohammed Habib, it is because of rapid and irregular heartbeat and cardiac damage, which can be treated successfully if medical attention is sought in time. So it's like a lot of things where it's not necessarily like there's a an antidote for an overdose it's more so we treat the symptoms of the overdose typically yeah so at the hotel charles tries to implicate diana further so that she won't rat him out and he tries to do this by drugging a different tourist drink with nitrazepam but with shit getting increasingly worse with the stranger who picked her up in a foreign country and then killed a man diana fled and Charles was an able to find her again. <laughs> no fucking surprises here. No surprises here. She got the fuck out. She's like, I am in way over my head. This is far too much for me. I am out. I am out. All the way out. I am yeah. out. Yeah. So when the police showed up at his hotel room, Charles was completely unsurprised. <laughs> I've been expecting you. <laughs> What did catch him off guard, however, was learning that he wasn't being arrested for murder, but was being kidnapped by the Iranian secret police for illegally smuggling passports into the country. Okay. And again, like, I was reading this and I was like, and you say that you confirmed this, Richard Neville and Julie Clark? Like, this is a fucking weird-ass story, but Mm -hmm. they said they did. And so I, I have no way to verify this, but this is what they wrote. He was able to trade his life for the names of anti-Shah activists somehow. Like, how does he know anti-Shah activists? And that's like a royal highness type person in Iran. Okay. okay. But like, how how do you know these people that you can trade their names in order to like... Right. Uh, and so, hmm. so he wasn't obviously sent by Diana. But Diana did make a statement to Interpol about Habib's death and the disposal of his body, and the body was never found. But Charles was now on the radar of Pakistani police for abduction and murder. Usha, his daughter, when he was taken by the secret police in Iran, she was taken by the French embassy and was flown back to Paris. And crimes were making headlines so that Chantal, still in Afghanistan, was catching bits and pieces of what her husband oh was doing God. in the newspaper. She keeps getting this all secondhand, like, finding it out in the news for, like, oh, my God, I feel bad for her. Yeah. So, yeah, she she knew Interpol was also looking into Charles for his crimes in France. 
and was worried about like how haggard he looked in some of the photos that she saw. <laughs> so he, she was like, oh no, I think he's going to kill himself. Like, I don't know. Mm. She's, she's worried. She has no power. She was eventually released in January of 1973, but because of the fine that she had to pay to legally leave Afghanistan and various issues surrounding getting currency from France, she wasn't able to go home until April. And Charles was not released from prison for his various crimes until October of that year. But Chantal had finally had enough of him. She was like, I'm done. Leave him, sis. I know. (laughs) I know. Like, you were reading about his charges from Interpol in the newspaper and jail in Afghanistan. Like, how many red flags do you need? (laughs) Right. So she had taken Usha to America and was now living with an antiques dealer she met in Kabul after she was released from jail and was suing Charles for a divorce. Losing his wife and his child because of his poor decisions that weren't conducive to a stable or a sustainable lifestyle, it didn't deter Charles. He'd already thrown away all of his opportunities at success with his father's business and his own business and a family, so there was really nothing else that made sense to him but to keep trying his hand at crime until crime worked out for him. And this time, he invited his younger half-brother Guy to join him in his bumbling-ass adventures. The two were living together at a hotel in Istanbul in November of 1973 when Charles showed Guy how he preyed on the hippies and tourists passing through the city. Charles spiked the drink of a middle-aged man traveling with a woman when he determined that they were carrying a large amount of jewelry on them. The drugs in the drink gave the man diarrhea, and these may have just been like simple laxatives. They were never named, but he did this because it could easily be passed off as like a stomach bug or food Mm, poisoning. mm -hmm. Something Mm -hmm. you picked up while traveling. And then the drugs that Charles told the man were vitamins that would help his stomach after this bout of diarrhea were actually sleeping pills, and they knocked him out. And this was probably nitrazepam or diazepam. And then back at his hotel room, there was a struggle with the woman when she was like, what are you doing? Why am I here? (laughs) They injected her with a sedative, and then they made their escape with the stolen jewelry. At this point, Charles and Guy parted ways, and Charles left for business in Copenhagen, <laughs> and then Guy made his way to Athens. And so this so was... So did Guy just decide that this wasn't for him? No, they're deciding that they need to get out of Istanbul and they shouldn't be seen together. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but Guy was like, oh, I love this. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's into it. He's into this whole crime thing. <laughs> know what it is about everybody around charles he's like you have great ideas (laughs) (laughs) right but so they reconvened a week later and charles was more focused at this point on sleeping with european women than robbing them and so guy decided to put his brother's techniques to use on his own he drugged a lebanese businessman with two nitrazepam in his coffee and then robbed him so now both brothers are using nitrazepam but what is it So it's actually one of the earliest benzodiazepine derivatives. It was first introduced Mm. in the 1960s for sleep disorders. And it's not approved for use in the United States, but it was in the 1970s and still is available in Europe under the brand name Mogadon. It comes in 5 and 10 milligram pills and should not be taken with anything else that induces drowsiness, like alcohol, cannabis, or antihistamines because all benzodiazepines are CNS depressants, which inhibit GABA. So if you're putting it in somebody's, like, drink, that's likely to lead to another poisoning. And, like, 
I'm sure a guy doesn't know that he killed a guy in Pakistan, no. but like, no, stop, maybe. Right. But as such, an overdose of nitrazepam could present with problems with balance and motor functions, low blood pressure, difficulty breathing, slowed heart rate, and then possible cardiac arrest. Diazepam, which the brothers also used during their time in Istanbul, acts in the same way, and that's because it's another benzodiazepine, typically sold under the brand name Valium. So they're basically just using Valium on all these people, and they don't know it. Mm. So seeing that his brother was enthusiastic and competent in his ability to do robberies and steal as he did, Charles asked Guy to do a job for him in Lebanon the next day. So he's like, you're doing good. Go to Lebanon for me. (laughs) And Charles was going to go to India for a jewelry heist. So they're in Athens. Guy's about to head to Lebanon on the plane out of Greece. Guy was identified by the man he'd robbed earlier that day and arrested. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) They found the bag of fake passports that Charles had sent him with and questioned him as to, what are you doing with these fake passports? (laughs) But he stayed quiet. He was like, you're not getting anything out of me. And then they decided to beat and torture the information out of him. And, oh shit! Yeah, that escalated quickly. <laughs> it really did. They like were beating his feet with a cane and stuff. And once he was near unconsciousness, he was finally like, "Okay, okay, I was sent on an assignment by my brother Charles Sobraj, and he's at the Hilton in Athens." Like he just oh, so he gave it all up. <laughs> he gave it all up. Yeah, Charles was quickly arrested because they knew his name and his whereabouts, and he was thrown into the same cell as his brother. Because that's a good idea. Oh, yeah, no. Good idea. (laughs) Yeah. And he convinced the younger man to switch identities with him because Charles could more easily deal with Interpol than Guy would be able to because he's dealt with Interpol before. So, and I don't know how they did this. Like, Guy is beaten to a pulp and he's like, let's switch identities. And it's not like... Like, they're just putting two guys in a cell, and two guys are coming out, and they're saying that their names are different. Right. But somehow this worked. Somehow they're... <laughs> they got away with this. They got away. They switched identities. But Guy didn't know that Charles had already been arrested in Greece in 1971 for robbing tourists to try to recover gambling losses. Mm. And he had escaped jail by jumping out of a window, so he hadn't served his time. <gasps> Oh, no. He'd been sentenced to 13 months in absentia, and now Guy was supposed to serve those 13 months. Oh, no. I know, I know, I know, I know. So so the brothers were sent to a maximum security prison on the island of Agina, and it was supposed to be, like, damn near impossible to escape this island because only, like, truly awful prisoners and people sentenced to death were sent there. It's like Alcatraz. Like, you're on the island. You're not getting off. Within two months, however, Charles made his escape by faking a peptic ulcer again and getting sent to the hospital. Oh, During- my God. <laughs> I know. It just keeps working. I know. It really, like, I mean... He, that's why he keeps doing it because it hasn't hasn't failed yet so why not i guess i know i bet he wishes he'd thought of that before he did the appendectomy like man i can keep repeating a peptical sir the appendix right. you only get one out of that right right it's one and done <laughs> so 
During the transfer back to jail from the hospital, he started a fire in the van with a bottle of cologne. Okay. With him in there. Yeah, and it, it caused chaos. Nobody but him knew what was going on, so he was the only one who escaped. <laughs> because he was the only one who knew. Everybody else was, like, rearrested and, like, collected, but he just got the fuck out of there. Oh, my God. But the guards thought that it was Guy Roussel who had escaped. <laughs> because they switched oh, ideas. No. Oh, no. <laughs> Meanwhile, the real guy was still in jail, being held on passport theft. And after Charles's escape, Guy was like, no, I'm Guy. I'm. Please don't make me, like, serve Please don't Charles. make me, right, serve all of this time. <laughs> and he and was like, sure, that's what you would say, Charles. Yeah, that's exactly. what you would say. <laughs> exactly. So he's, like, in this bind. And he's like, no, for real. But then the guy who was beating him in the original jail recognized him and was like, that's guy that's not charles sobrage and so it didn't really so do did much. it get it it didn't get set straight i mean he they did set his identity straight and they were able to be like oh charles sobrage is on the run but like okay he still had to serve a two-year and 10-month prison term under his real identity oh, as guy oh, yeah yeah so charles is out and about guys in prison and around this time, Charles received news that his father died for real this time. For real this time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he learned, unfortunately, that he would not get a single cent of his father's fortune because Ho-Chan's second wife, Chu, had thought that all of his money would go to his first wife, Gita. And so she spent all of it before Gita could get anything, which means oh, the kids don't get anything. And at the same time, the war officially ends, again, like, for real this time. And the Americans left, and Saigon was renamed Ho Chi Minh City. So everything that Charles knew or loved in Vietnam was gone, and there was nothing there for him anymore. So he decided that the next place he could truly call home was India. And it was on the flight there that he met the woman who would become his most famous accomplice. And her name was Marie-André Leclerc. Marie-André was a French-Canadian woman from Quebec. On the fifth day of her three-week Indian vacation in May of 1975, when she first saw Charles Sobrage on the plane, then again noticed him in Kashmir negotiating the price of a houseboat rental that he and a French couple were interested in. Marie-André was drawn to the man who had a cool air of command in the situation, and offered that she and her traveling companion and ex-fiance, Jules DuPont, would go in on the houseboat rental with him in order to make it more price-worthy. The attraction between Charles and Marie-André was mutual and grew while they stayed on the houseboat and explored India, but things were tense because of the presence of Jules and the fact that Charles didn't really trust anyone, and Marie-André was supposed to go back to Quebec when her trip was over. Like, this is all very temporary. In fact, Charles had been going by the name Alon since his escape from Agina, so she really didn't know anything about him except that he seemed worldly and was attractive, like, more attractive than her balding mama's boy ex that she was traveling with and, like, sharing a bed with even though they weren't in love anymore. Like, it was a very weird situation for mm. her. She's in a weird place. After only a few days, she confessed her love for Charles 
and said that there was nothing left hmm. between her and Jules. And she said that she might be willing to come live with Charles in Asia. Like, why not? Okay. I'm totally in love with you. <laughs> right. And then after that, they were basically like officially together, like sleeping together, traveling together. And <laughs> this guy's he's kind of like he's really got game. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like these women are like falling head over heels for him in like days, weeks, like marrying him, like right off the bat. Like, yeah, it, he's got game. He does. He's got game. So what what Marie Andre didn't know is that the French couple he had just met. And he was actually planning to drug and rob them, but he didn't because he was getting distracted by Marie Andre. So they got off for like really easy. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, he started drugging Jules's coffee with nitrazepam to make him sleepy so that he could get more alone time with Marie Andre. And he's like, I don't want this to go to waste as well. <laughs> it's what I know. It's what I do really well. So the three of them did a bit of traveling together with Jules as the third wheel. But eventually their vacation came to an end and Marie-Andre and Jules had to return to Quebec. And it was only then that Charles told her that his real name was Charles. And he actually even gave her his mother's address in Marseille and told her to write to him and that they would see each other in Asia again soon. So Hmm. he's being kind of forthcoming, but not completely forthcoming. Right. And then after this, India fell into a state of complete chaos and the Indian prime minister was told by the high court that she won her parliamentary seat illegally. And so on June 26th, hundreds of Indian political leaders were arrested. A state of emergency was declared. All constitutional rights were suspended. And Charles Sobraj got the fuck out of there. He was like, this is not the country this either. Isn't... <laughs> yeah, this isn't, this isn't it. I'm going to go wander some more. <laughs> yeah. So he wanders around. He robs some people. By July, he was in Hong Kong. He took on the name Alain Gauthier, robbed a Cartier representative, and then fled to Bangkok. And it was there that he picked up the telephone and reached across the world to Marie Andre, beckoning her to come join him in his travels and escapades. But that is a story for next time. Excellent. Well, this was quite the wild ride. I'm excited until part two, I reckon. Yeah. Yep. I will see you all then. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.